The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Good afternoon, and uh, welcome to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis, episode 13 on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm your host, Nicholas Wansbutter, and uh, I'm joined today, as always, by uh, our uh, regular guest, Bishop Daniel Dolan, pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Parish in uh, Westchester, Ohio. Uh, My Lord, uh, thank you once again for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, we usually have Father Chicada with us, the assistant pastor at St. Gertrude's, but unfortunately he's fighting off this illness that seems to be making the rounds. I think I had it just a couple weeks ago, and I know a few other people have. So um, we're giving him the, this episode off so he can, he, he can recover. And uh, today's show, what we're going to be talking about is a bunch of different topics. It's a bit about patriotism, proper patriotism, but focusing more on uh, government and new church propaganda and how that can affect us and things that we should do, look out for and things that we can do to counteract that and how this can play into the creation of the crisis, the progression of the crisis, and I think even into the restoration. Uh, but before we uh, get into the show proper, my Lord, uh, if I could ask you to start us off with a prayer, please. Indeed, thank you. Uh, I I will begin with the the prayer of the Mass of St. Augustine of Canterbury, whose feast we had just on the 28th of May, the the saint who brought the Catholic faith to to England, sent by St. Gregory the Great. Let us pray. O God, who by the preaching and miracles of blessed Augustine, thy confessor and bishop, didst vouchsafe to enlighten the English nation, with the light of the true faith. Moved by his prayers, vouchsafe the hearts of those who have gone astray may return to the unity of thy truth, and that we may ever be of one mind in doing thy will, who livest and reignest world without end. Amen. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. So uh, that brings us to the topic today, and uh, what, what started it all, or the uh, what inspired it, is uh, an article that uh, Bishop Dolan found and passed on to me, and from the Telegraph, uh, of all places. The, uh, of all places, uh, indeed. You're right. right. Yeah. And, I mean, a fairly well-known but liberal uh, British newspaper. And uh, the link, I'm not going to read out the whole link because it's too long, but it's in the show description. Uh, So if uh, you just go to the description of our show, either on Blog Talk Radio and then going to the Radio Network link, you can get the uh, link to this Telegraph article. Um, But perhaps I'll start off 
at the end of the article with a quote that it has from uh, the tombstone of a Robert Peckham, and I think this will set the tone for our, for our discussion. Uh, Robert Peckham was Englishman who died in Rome in 1569 during the, lane, the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, and the uh, epitaph wrote, Here lies Robert Peckham, Englishman and Catholic, who, after England's break with the church, left England because he could not live in his country without the faith, and, having come to Rome, died there because he could not live apart from his country. So, um, thank, thank you for that, uh, for that introduction, Nicholas. So, perhaps um, with, with that introduction being kept in mind, we could situate ourselves hmm, liturgically or spiritually. As this show is being recorded, we are and presented, we are in the Church's most ancient novena in preparation for Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Ghost. We beseech him to come with the seven gifts. The quote that you've just read, Nicholas, evokes the, uh, a, a, a real aspect of the Holy Ghost gift of piety, and um, the article in the Telegraph makes me think of the Holy Ghost gift of Knowledge. Knowledge warns us of the deceit of creatures. And we want to talk today a little bit about history, true history, propaganda, the deceits of the creatures, uh, and the creature machine for influencing people's, people's thoughts and perceptions and their history, rewriting history for falsehood. But first to start, that, that beautiful gift of piety, um, we just had to the feast day of St. Um, Joan of Arc. She's a, she's a wonderful example of that. In, in our last show, our audience will will recall that we we discussed, amongst other topics, the interesting concept of relocating for the mass or relocating for a particular church or chapel, particularly if you and your family have no access to the sacraments. It's a question of um, pluses and minuses, pros and cons. But this Sir Robert Peckham, he relocated to Rome itself because there was no mass and there was no Catholic faith left in his own country of England, and yet. He was, he was such an Englishman through and through that uh, he, you might say that he died of grief there in his exile in the eternal city in, in, in Rome as, his, as the epitaph that he, leave, that, he, that he left us read, he left England because he could not live in his country without the faith and having come to Rome died there because he could not live apart from his country. I couldn't think of a better description of not only the virtue of patriotism that Joan of Arc and others uh, beautifully uh, exemplify, but, you know, I couldn't think of a better description, too, of what England was before those wretched Tudors got a hold of it and strangled the life out of it and made it into some strange new creature. So uh, it, it was Catholic. It was Mary's dowry through and through. And uh, I think what we want to talk today about, Nicholas, is, is a little bit about this article. By the way, I just typed in um, uh, English Reformation Telegraph, and it came up the very first thing on Google. Google can be, can be useful at times, um, so our audience can even type it in perhaps and follow along with us as we discuss it. How was it that England, that was so quintessentially Catholic, but as Catholic countries are Catholic in its own way, by the, according to the, to the customs of the place and the personality of the people and the rest, how did they become Protestants? So I guess that's what we want to talk about today in the first, in the, in the first part. And, and it's interesting to preface that discussion by 
putting in mind the fact that Catholic, uh, England was a very Catholic country, I think the, the Tudor transformation that your Lordship referenced was in a way so, quote, successful, unquote, uh, from their perspective, that pretty much everyone now, English and non-English alike, think of England as a Catholic country. And uh, the article, the Telegraph article, even talks about their propaganda of trying to suggest that Catholicism was somehow foreign or alien to Mm -hmm. England. But when you look at the evidence, Catholicism was actually very, very deeply ingrained in in English society. Oh, yes, very, very, very much so, just in, in every aspect. That's why it was a traumatic cultural change for the English themselves. You might say that they they went through almost um, a personality change. It's a, it's a remarkable and a terrifying uh, subject to consider what the state propaganda machine w- was able finally to produce. There was something in the English spirit, I think, that died. You, you, read in, you read in the article, you read in history about the, um, the, the, uh, the popular, the, the author of this article uses the, the modern word communitarian, uh, the, the popular, popular, shall we say, full of popular participation, and um, the very external, the very devotional, what you and I might want to consider to be uh, Spanish or Latin Catholicism, vested statues and processions and candles and flowers flowers and lots of color and paint in the church uh, and drama, drama in their faith uh, and public devotion, public prayer all day, every day, especially for feast days. No, that was English Catholicism. That was English. And then English Catholicism is in turn linked with um, obviously the flourishing of the arts, uh, theater, uh, the, the round of the of, of the Corpus Christi plays, the, the, the plays that were actually put on in church or in front of the church for, for great feast days, especially for um, Corpus Christi. Um, education, too, as well as the care of the, for the sick and the poor, these things were provided by the clergy or by the, by the monasteries. All of that was swept up and destroyed, and then the propaganda machine taught people that it was a good thing, that it was a good thing. This happened. This is all the dark ages, you see, and it had, it had to happen. No one talks about uh, this, this, the huge vandalization that occurred of, uh, all, in some respect, 90% of the glass and all of the English art, uh, all the, all the, so much of the English devotion art just perished. It was just destroyed. It was smashed. It was burned. It was melted down uh, so that the people couldn't see anymore what they used to believe and the, the way they used to live. So that would be my premise, I think, Nicholas, that, that something in the English soul died and um, there was a real change in personality that, that went on. At some point, some, some authors say maybe the second half, by the second half of the reign of Elizabeth, certainly by her death and the accession of James, Mm-hmm. This transformation had been had been had been achieved in about three generations, two or three generations. My goodness! Yeah, and and well, you know, well before George Orwell, they yes, uh, yeah. they're casting things down the Orwellian memory hole, really, by destroying the people's history in, in the way you've described. And that that was something that really struck me. And they they actually reference in the article also a book, uh, The Stripping of the Altars by Eamon Duffy. I don't know if, oh, oh, yes. if you're familiar with that, Lord. I am familiar with that book. I, I've read that. It's, it's fascinating, but you're right. It 
people don't associate these things with English people, but the 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 uh, statues of saints vested in the the most precious cloth that the people could afford, and uh, candles yeah. and flowers mm-hmm. uh, everywhere that described you you get a much different picture. Although I, I one thing I I wonder is the uh, Church of England seems to be I mean now it's gone completely insane, but for a long time it was almost like a would you agree it was somewhat of a Protestant light compared to say the more extreme Protestantism that you would have found in Scandinavia or in Germany? And is that perhaps because the English were so Catholic that they couldn't go as quickly there? They had to do a bit more of the frog in the boiling pot of water treatment? Well, I think from, again, a historical point of view, Nicholas, I think you can fairly say that, um, uh, well, Anglicanism is referred to as the Elizabethan Compromise, and supposedly uh, there, there, there was meant to be the best of Protestantism and the best of Catholicism that was sort of distilled and produced in the Book of Common Prayer. The Book of Common Prayer, the English uh, Protestant prayer book they use for their services, is a, in large part... Um, a, a simplification and a sort of a Protestant version of the the divine office and the missal of of the of the Sarum Church. The Sarum rite was a, a variant of the Roman rite that was used in England until the Protestant Revolt. Um, so there there is an awful lot, uh, far more than fifty percent of of their of their services of their calendar of their worship that 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 has that has retained a certain catholic element that being said nevertheless for 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 centuries particularly after um uh charles the first um and his execution, and then the, when the restoration came, that uh, the England became more, more truly, more sort of classically, continentally Protestant uh, until the 19th century during the Oxford Movement. And in the Oxford Movement, these things, which we associate, as they say, with exotic, foreign, or Latin Catholicism, and in which the typical Englishman of that day would would really have you know popped his monocle at when he, if he if he could see as a boy what's this this is not English uh-huh. uh, uh, and you clear his throat or something very discreetly uh, as, as, as English people do in restaurants you know it's a, just, everything is very discreet and soft mm-hmm. and, and, and underspoken because that's that's English um, but uh, Faber and, and and even Newman because Newman was an oratorian um, bringing up bringing all these Italianate devotions and but they were called the Italianate, and the the, the term of of of, uh, of reproach that the Protestant English would use against the English uh, the, against the missionaries, the Catholic missionaries who would come in amongst them, uh, was to refer to the the Catholic churches as the Italian mission. So it was viewed as, as something foreign. That's the point. It's foreign to the English spirit. But um, our the happy historical revisionist studies have uh, demonstrated that no, this. This was this was English too. This is the this is the lost heritage of England in this respect, as in so many others. So the um, the sort of an image of the English Catholic, the old Catholic families, say who had managed somehow or another to keep the faith all during the year the centuries of persecution, and it was a very their Catholicism was very understated, discreet, quiet, 
undemonstrative, unemotional, and uh, bare bones because of the persecution, just as Irish Catholicism developed it in a certain way because of the Protestant persecution. Um, and then they would con- one would contrast that English, the old Catholic English spirit, say, just before the um, Oxford movement, with the, the new enthusiastic and very devotional and very papally oriented spirit of, um, of the missionaries coming in in the 19th century, the oratorians or the passionist fathers, the redemptorists, and uh, all of the rest. But actually, they were, they were restoring to England what was hers. What, what a wonderful thought that was. That, uh, and that, that was a prayer of so many, including Paul, St. Paul of the Cross. He, he knew that his passionist fathers, he, he had a revelation that uh, they were meant to bring the faith back to England, and so they did with the Father Barberi's, Dominic Barberi's uh, baptism of Newman, for example. Mm-hmm. They, were, they weren't implanting something new, foreign, or different. They were bringing something back, something that, that had been lost. Um, then I think the other thing I wanted to say, too, is, is that, uh, of course, the, uh, the English Protestant Church developed into uh, three separate uh, divisions or movements, high church, low church, and broad church. The uh, Novus Ordo Church um, has approximately the same thing, and that's, of course, the idea of this, of this new one world religion. So as we're talking about England, the history of the church in England, it's a very, it's, I think it's a very helpful insight for us to keep in mind for the history of the changes, the, uh, the, the revolution of Vatican II over the past 50 years. Even, even now, there is firmly established in the Novus Ordo Church a high church movement. Now, the high church movement in England went almost, um, it's interesting, they went almost uh, without thinking towards this very elaborate form of devotional Catholicism, which we see these high churches in England with vested statues, with candles and flowers, incense, processions, devotions. They just took to it like a fish to water, maybe because there was something there that, that lingered, as you say, Nicholas, in, in the English spirit over all of those centuries of suppression. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, the parallels that you, your Lordship draws between the... Uh, English Reformation, so-called, and the Vatican II uh, ensuing crisis is uh, a very striking comparison. If one studies the history of the way the English went about things, and especially looking at the reforms that uh, Thomas Cranmer made with Mm -hmm. their, you mentioned the Book of Common Prayer, uh, Mm -hmm. they they followed a very similar procedure, and... uh, dare I say, with very similar results. Oh, oh yes, they, they, they did. For example, in the, in the last years of Henry VIII, even though Henry VIII essentially kept uh, the Catholic faith and was actually quite devout to the Mass, um, uh, in the last years of Henry VIII, there, 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 there was this uh, business about the reading of the Epistle and Gospel in English, and then the business about the uh, uh, people had to be given the scriptures, scriptures had to be put in the churches, and uh, communion under both forms. Those are the very mild changes that, that took place towards the end, as well as the, um, of course, the suppression of all the monasteries and the suppression of any shrines that were too popular too devotional, like the Holy Blood of Hail would be an example of that, or shrines that were politically incorrect, 
to Thomas Beckett, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, those, those shrines had to be despoiled and destroyed um, and then kind of stripped down. But So everything was done. Yes, it was all done in stages. And it's a, it's a heartbreak <laughs> to read the stripping of the altars or to read any history of, of, of the year. This year this was done and this year that was done. And then, and then the glorious restoration under Mary, but how it lasted only a few years. And then with her unexpected death in 1558, then how uh, Elizabeth comes in and she solidifies the uh, solidifies the Protestant revolt, and she presents herself. She is presented, but she's she's running the show. She presents herself deliberately. This is the blasphemy of it as the Virgin Queen, quote unquote, and she is meant to be the replacement for the Virgin Mary who is a true queen of England. Um, very, very interesting. The cultus of the Virgin Queen and the mythology of it. Um, for, 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 because you have to give people something to believe in. So now you have to believe in uh, Elizabeth I or, or some, maybe some, some, some Hollywood strumpet or starlet that whom the world would present to you. This is what we have to believe in. It's a diabolical opposite of our, our Blessed Lady, who is truly our, our, our Queen and, and our Blessed Mother. So uh, the, the, um, the, the process and the progress of the Reformation, one step after another, after another, the destruction of certain feasts at the start and the destruction of all the feasts, and um, for some vernacular in the, in the Mass, and then the abolition of the Mass itself under King Edward during his... Uh, uh, during his uh, short reign, six years, I think he, he was nine years old when he came in, uh, that the mass is abolished and, and a communion service is, is put in instead, and then the same thing is done. Personally, I never, I don't know, they say it's the, it's the compromise and it was somehow a combination of Catholic and Protestant. I've never really seen that so much or found that to be true. Uh, there, there always were those of this high church movement in England who tried to tried to, to make the Protestant church, the Protestant religion, Protestant worship into something Catholic, as Novus Ordo conservatives will do today. The, 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 the parallels are stunning. Read history, study it, talk about it, see the parallel, and then understand what's going on in uh, our time. And the, the Protestant leaders were aware of that, too. They were always, all the time trying to suppress anyone who would fit the communion table out like an altar and then have a suggestion of the sacrifice of the Mass still, because it was hard to abolish, as you say, it's hard to abolish all those Catholic customs overnight. It didn't happen. Just as uh, in, uh, in, in our world, in our history over the past uh, half century, it didn't happen overnight. Um, the difference, uh, maybe we should talk about the difference. The difference is that this was enforced by a sheer rule of terror. And... Uh, as the French say, pour encourager les autres. So you have to encourage the others by making an example of some, somebody's head on a pike outside the city, people being uh, uh, butchered, hung and then butchered to death as, as, uh, for the crime of treason when their only crime was that they wouldn't change their religion. They kept their Catholic faith. Um, this is part of the, the great terrorist propaganda machine that the Tudors had in place to force a change in religion. Um, you can read about that in the article mm-hmm. and in history books. But the difference is that in the Novus Ordo, while it came officially, especially at the beginning, most of the, most of the 
uh, unsuspecting sheep, including the clergy, who simply obeyed the orders that came from Rome, which was now become the seat of Antichrist, uh, they, they obeyed. And so that's how all these churches were destroyed. They're stripped out. That's how the mass gave way to a meal in just two or three years. One change after another, and the statues and the art, stained glass, the beautiful paintings, the music, uh, everything just went. Every, the doctrine, it all just went out the window and just uh, with this revolutionary change. The difference is that they couldn't there is no means because of, in another sense, the fruit of the French Revolution. There is now uh, freedom of religion, which Francis has recently proclaimed again as a human right. Well, now we have this human right of freedom of religion. So they weren't able to, this time around, they weren't able to stop us. In some places, there was some persecution. Sometimes the government would go along with the church, especially in Catholic countries. But Usually, especially you say in uh, in the English-speaking world, one was perfectly free. So yeah. you could rent a hall, and you could buy it, raise money, and buy a church, and you could keep the faith going that way. And um, that's one of the big differences. Uh, although, faith... uh, yeah. thinking of the the difference, though, it seems to me, in a, from a certain perspective, maybe they've just. Uh, the enemies of Christ have perfected the fine art of doing these things to an extent, uh, because oftentimes making martyrs can can and does increase people's uh, faith because sure. of the graces from the blood, the graces of the blood of martyrs, but also just you know seeing someone that you know and love killed will can stir people up more. Whereas just uh, marginalizing people, saying, oh, they're just crazy if they want the old ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in fact, yeah, sure, you have the freedom. If you want to go put your money together and rent a hall, you can. We're not going to stop you. Uh, you know, so that, that in a way almost saps the, uh, some of the fervor of people who might want to uh, protest and say, well, look, they're not killing us, so maybe this isn't so bad. And, but but it's interesting to note, right, that the the uh, the, uh, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But you have to be a hundred percent Catholic, and you've been willing to sacrifice, as the Elizabethan martyrs were in England, to sacrifice your all, everything, to to, to God and, and and for your faith and for the Holy Catholic Church. Um, the sacrifice that. Our people are called upon to make, and we're called upon to make in the 60s and the 70s, especially, is very similar to the, the sacrifice of the Catholics of that of, of England at this era had to make too. That is to say, well, it, they had to be like the early Christians again. They had to stick out in society. Society would have to expel them. Society would have to excommunicate them as weirdos, as cultists, as strange people, indeed as anarchists, as rebels, as revolutionaries. That's the way that that we were treated at that time. We might still be we Catholics who are left to a certain degree. That's how the that's how the Elizabethan Catholics were treated. You have to be able to 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 to, to bear that. You're you're no longer part of society. Now you are on the outskirts. You're on the fringes. You're part of a fringe movement. And the Southern Poverty Law Center probably needs to be investigating you and doing a report on you sometime soon. Um, that that's. But the Catholic spirit has to be able to survive that, and in spite of that, to be able to thrive. But, you know, the, 
in, in a way, that kind of a spirit is only possible in a place that has um, this, a very strong community or family, nation, and neighborhood. But um, modern life, curiously enough, again, it's a fruit of the revolution, Nicholas, but, you know, modern life actually favors the uh, maintenance of, 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 of the Catholic faith because in modern life you're an individual. You're autonomous. You're separate. You're on your own. You can relocate. You, you, you may have a family, but the, even if your, your, your spouse doesn't agree with you, well, that's all right, too, because those are all modern things. Everyone's cut off and individualized. And I see that. I see a lot of that. That's the fruit of the revolution, but that, in a sense, favors at least individuals in this very individualistic age. It favors them to, to, to keep the faith and to, to work for its, uh, for its spread and for its, uh, for its development. Mm-hmm. Well, for those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis on the Restoration Radio Network. I'm Nicholas Wansbutter, and I'm joined by His Lordship Bishop Daniel Dolan. And uh, today we've been discussing the uh, English Reformation and an interesting article that's in the uh, Telegraph uh, recently, and we've been draw- drawing some parallels to the current crisis in the church. And um, uh, just continuing uh, on that theme, Lord, uh, w- one comment that, that you made earlier that struck me that I want to follow up on uh, when you commented about uh, English Catholicism in order to survive over the centuries of persecution became rather uh, reserved and mm-hmm. um, and you also mentioned uh, Irish Catholicism. So I wonder that that in uh, did, do you think that even played a role in preparing the ground for the Vatican II revolution to come along, given the large number of Catholics in English-speaking countries? I'm thinking specifically of the United States. Was the ground in the United States prepared for the revolution because? Did Americans have a bit more of a reserved Catholicism even before Vatican II as a result? They did, because um, that's, the, that's the success of the work of uh, a leading Americanist in the 19th century who was the Archbishop of the Minneapolis St. Paul, uh, Archbishop Ireland, John Ireland. He was a leader of the Americanist Party. The Americanist Party wanted everything, everything to be as American as possible, which essentially means a yet further watered-down version of Irish Catholicism, um, which has no cultural connection at all because the Irish were used to living that way because the culture was 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 was, was that of the conquerors, and that was the English Protestants. So they had the English Protestant Church set up. So the I, the Americanists under Archbishop Ireland despised the uh, what the ethnic Catholics who came over. And the very strong, vibrant, again, community or communitarian life that you would find in an ethnic parish, the Germans in particular, and uh, the Poles, later on the Slavs, the Italians. All of these had a vibrant life. They brought the, as much of their, uh, of their old world customs and Catholic attitudes with them that they could. And there was sort of a conflict between the, the bishops who are mostly Irish, uh, especially at the beginning. or uh, they, they didn't have much understanding and much sympathy for that way of life. But that way of life was the way of life that was taken away from the English Catholics. And that, that way of life was, it, it, that's the Catholic, that's Catholic life. It has to be lived in a community, in a parish. It takes an outward expression. Uh, it's not 
private and low-key, and, um, you know, you, you might raise your eyes or clear your voice, but nothing more. <laughs> no, it's not the Catholic spirit. It never was, and it never will be. But you are absolutely right. As English would say, Nicholas, you're spot on when, when we're talking about um, what happened to American Catholicism. It got Americanized. It got Irishized, if you will. Uh, but the, the, the strong, strong, de- and utter devotion to the Mass and to Mary that the Irish had for centuries I mean, you know, they would kneel on the streets if they knew a mass was being read in a private room someplace. It was Sunday morning. They couldn't get in. There wasn't enough room. They would just kneel and the, they didn't care. And they would say their beads. That's Irish Catholicism. But all of that got watered down because it's this idea of going along to get along, being accepted and acceptable. Unfortunately, those, those uh, characteristics came to dominate uh, the American church. And that really did prepare the way for the changes. For those who keep the look, look at many parishes in Germany, especially southern Germany, Bavaria, Austria, Poland, uh, where where the, where the faith was connected to popular life, not cut off from it, but can, part of it. And the church, the church year informed all of the customs. And the, the reformers had a much harder time. That's that's mm-hmm. why. That's why, you know, in Poland today, it, it looks Catholic still, and people kind of scratch their head, right, at the idea of a, of a conservative, conservative or traditionalist movement. Why do we need this? Look, we have, and it's true, you go into the churches, and it looks, to a large degree, still, still Catholic. So I guess that's why the devil and the Tudors got together, and the first thing that they did was to despoil the monasteries, to destroy the shrines and the great popular devotions and the places of pilgrimage, and then to strip and make bare the churches, and eventually to do away with the mass. That see that that approach historically. That's the same thing that happened 50 years ago in the Catholic Church with the changes. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, the, I mean, those changes have been largely Im- implemented at that point. And uh, as you say, Lord, we're able to somewhat, I guess, given the individualism of the modern age, we're able to. Uh, get away from it a little more easily and have our own chapels and that. But I know, uh, Lord, you wanted to talk about how government and church propaganda can still affect us today. And I mean, are we even aware of how these things are still chipping away at our psyches? Yes, that uh, the telegraph article starts with um, uh, an important uh, allusion to Khrushchev and Khrushchev's notion that historians are dangerous people. They are capable of upsetting everything. Um, and I, I was, this article preparing for the show made me maybe do some thinking along these lines. It, I think it is very important. That's why Restoration Radio has such a role to play. A plug for our true sponsor here, um, it, in, in the way of getting the truth out, is very important for those of us, in all humility, who have lived through the changes and who have known the dramatis personae, all of the actors in this great drama, 
of, of the changes over the last 50 years, or at least some of them, and seen and lived through it pers- firsthand, it's very important for all of this to be written down, for it to be talked about, for it to be recorded, and then spread and bandied about. Because the next then cometh the next generation, which has no knowledge of these things, and is only formed by the propaganda machines of each particular party or movement. So the high church movement of the conciliar church, or the, uh, the, the schismatics of Pius X society, they have their own, they have their version of the truth. And you will find them to be just as unwilling to listen to what actually happened or to maybe to consider with an open mind historical facts and try to understand them in context as, as, as would, say, uh, um, communist or left-wing historians of the 20th century. They, they use history as they use every other means to promote their ideology. Whereas history is history. History is supposed to be the story of what, what really did happen. And those who lived through this story have left records. And it's important to look at those records and to talk to those who are still around and, and, and maybe get some idea of, of, of what, what happened and then be able to distinguish the propaganda from, from the reality and from the truth. So I, I view this as, as a very important obligation that say, someone like Father Chicago, myself, Bishop Sanborn, would have in this uh, in this era in which we live. Father Francis Miller would be another one because he knew Archbishop Tuck so very well. We have to talk about these things, and we have to write about them and uh, make people as much as possible, at least make them aware of of what happened back then. Otherwise, what do we end up with? We end up with somebody's propaganda. It's like, you know, drinking English warm beer is maybe an acquired taste, <laughs> but you, you're just meant to just drink it. And you're not meant to, you're not meant to question uh, because right. this is what, this is what everybody does. And, um, this is, this is how it's, it's going to be. No, we're not interested in that. We're interested in Catholic truth. So well, thank God for the possibility. Right. Well, mm-hmm. and I suppose the beauty of living the, in the era that we live in, I, I suppose it's said that our Lord puts all of us into the era that we're meant to be in. But for all the yes. all the evils that we have, there's also we have unprecedented access uh, to information um, and to travel. I mean, when you mention being able to speak with the people that uh, that knew the, the characters uh, from the the revolution as it was occurring, well, just for example. Your Lordship and I are speaking on the phone, even though we're hundreds of miles apart. And in yes. previous era, eras, that wouldn't have been possible at all. Um, and, I mean, St. Gertrude the Great is even a six-hour drive from me, so I could go and, and visit there, and I hope to soon. And there's the Internet. We have mentioned Restoration Radio, but there's you know, sggresources.org. People can get uh, uh, all kinds of articles off of there. People have books like never before. Uh, there's uh, literacy, at least in North America, uh, to an extent that most societies, well, they frankly didn't have a need for it in the past, but uh, we have that. So it's another, another tool that we have that people would have never had before. Yes, and you know, you know, I think I mentioned this before, Nicholas, but we, or Father Chikada, Father Chikada hears from people regularly, maybe as, as often as twice a week, if not more often, who, who have literally read themselves into 
a correct, a Catholic, an objective understanding of what happened with this revolution of Vatican II, simply by, by, by reading, by study. And, and they live in the, all over the world. But now with the wonders of the Internet, they can access the truth. They can, they can find out what is false, what's propaganda, and what is not. And that, and then maybe the actual grace or sanctifying grace, they're able to put the picture together and then to be in touch with fellow Catholics, to find the Catholic truth, be in touch with fellow Catholics, and support that work. So that's, uh, this is something which has never happened before, I suppose, in the history of humanity. But then again, it has never happened before in the history of humanity that, that Rome has, be- has been for 50 years the functioning, living, breathing, beating heart, not of the papacy, but of the Antichrist, and the pumping out every day of propaganda, falsehood, lies, false worship, and sacrilege, uh, which goes on, if anything, now under Bergoglio at an increased rate. So we're few, relatively speaking, but we are throughout the whole world. And God, in his mercy, is is always raising up somebody else to be a supporter, someone else to, to, to be an apostle and to spread the word, who'd be willing to step apart from, from society and its understanding of things and uh, to risk the, the opprobrium, the, the, the disapproval of perhaps friends or family even, in the way of, uh, of promoting Catholic, Catholic faith and Catholic Church. Now, uh, we've spoken a fair bit about propaganda of the Novus Ordo sect, uh, but perhaps we should talk a little bit about uh, government propaganda, which is something that's also very dangerous, and perhaps some people may not be as on their guard of it because they figure, well, that's the secular sphere. It's not, you know, it's not directly impacting the faith the way things that are coming from the Novus Ordo, but uh, I, I take you to agree with me, Lord, that one must be very wary of that, too, and I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of priests are, shall we say, not big fans of the television. Oh, yes, right, sure. Sure, because, um, well, uh, so many of our people, having grown up this way, buy into the myth of the separation of church and state, and that politics have, has, has no place in the church. Well, obviously, personal or local politics, not particularly, but the great and the great themes of government and of culture that that uh, that the government indeed weighs in on and weighs heavily on and every day by its propaganda machine its laws its wars and all of the rest uh, no they, the church has has the obligation and the duty to to speak the truth so it's only if you know it's we're, we're unpeeling the artichoke here and it's a long and a painstaking um, effort we have to get to the root of the rot, the false ideas, where, where they've come from. So it's very important to understand the... Well, you can't understand Catholic history unless you understand the role of the government. What happened to the church in England? Well, it's the government, and it? it's the king. He decided that he would change religion. And the, the Tudors, the three monarchs in a row, they changed religion in England over a period of about 60 years or so. Um, what's happening today the government is uh, changing our entire life and, and kind of trying to erase the last vestiges of, say, right now, the natural law concerning marriage and, and, and other such issues. And the government has this huge propaganda machine that's been operating for, my goodness, in the United States of America all the way through, and, but particularly really having it start with Lincoln and uh, the Civil War. So unless we have some idea 
of what's going on and the ideas that are that's, that are behind what's going on, who wants to promote what and why they want to promote it and how we can counter it with Catholic truth. Then we end up with that modern compartmentalized, which is very sort of like a Lutheran idea, separated concept of life that, well, I like my mass. Uh, the French are very big on that, you know, and that's all that matters for them. I've got my mass. It's a good mass. It's a Latin mass. It's near, near me. And uh, don't bother me with the rest of the stuff. Uh, I don't really care. That's, that's, we have to fight against that tooth and nail. Uh, and, and those are ideas that are, that are unfortunately very, very popular amongst the Catholics who are left. No, we have to look at the big picture of things. Unless you understand the, the role of the government and government propaganda, you will not understand why the faith died out almost entirely in England. The same thing with, uh, with the Western world today, shall we say. This, uh, the government, it's perpetual wars, it's immorality, uh, the, very, the very nature of things today. Fortunately, we're able to put a show like this on. You, know, you can access it uh, on, on the Internet and listen to it at your leisure. You can mm-hmm. download it. You can spread it to others. And probably no one's going to come knocking at the door. The may, time may come. Your, your, our names may have probably been recorded someplace as, 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 as gentlemen of interest. But uh, for the time being, there's, there's, there's a liberty. But maybe there's this liberty because, on the other hand, it's never been so bad in history before. It has mm-hmm. never happened. We've had so many, so many false popes, one after another, who pre- who preach and produce uh, uh, an anti-Catholicism, and then now the government, more and more, very openly, is promoting the same thing in the way of rapid societal change. So thank God for the internet. Thank God for the modern means of uh, communication and education that we enjoy today, because these can be very good weapons for us. Mm-hmm. And. You know, we've spoken about propaganda, and people are probably thinking mostly about uh, TV programs or newspaper articles oh, yes. uh, and things like that. But would you uh, classify uh, things that are more uh, subtle or more just part of the culture, like music and clothing and recreations as part of that propaganda machine as well? Absolutely. Everything that, that, that surrounds us, nothing is insignificant. Nothing is uh, unimportant. I was reading an article yesterday about um, the, the black clothing code, and by that I do not mean like the clergy dressed in black. No, but I'm, I mean amongst the, in, the, in, the, in the black culture in America, if you could use that term, that's, 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 that's an oxymoron probably, but we'll pass on. How the the black young people, well, the the, the young men will 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 wear uh, hoodies, are called these t-shirts or, or, or sweatshirts with a with a hood attached, and there's a whole symbolism attached to that, uh, because the author points out. No clothing, no article of clothing is without its meaning or its symbolism. That's one of the great truths of life. And our people who want to come to church anymore dressed uh, in a very slovenly and, and disrespectful, casual fashion, our people buy into that and are influenced by that idea. But every, everything on the outside, everything external because of human nature, has some kind of an internal mes- message. Nothing is meaningless. Everything has a meaning. And, every, and all of this is going to be either for the good or it's going to be for the bad. In our context, it's for Catholic culture 
or it's for the revolution. So your traditional Catholics, even your Sadifacantists, who want to come to church dressed like slobs, just in, in to almost the same as the Novus Ordo, but maybe not shorts, but just uh, as casually as possible. You know, God forbid in the summer they should wear a, the men should wear a tie or a, or a suit coat out of respect for the Lord's house and the Lord's day. They're buying into the revolution too, aren't they? Just as much. And that bad example that they give to others, that's part of propaganda. That's the propaganda of saying, be your own person. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. You have a right to be casual and comfortable at all times. This idea of respect is who needs that. Well, the next right. step from that, of course, would be to do away with the priests and the priest vestments. Why can't the priests dress that way, too? You see, it's a, everything is propaganda. You're quite right. Everything has a message. Yeah. And uh, just continuing the, the clothing theme, I'd suggest that even outside of Mass, uh, it still has a meaning. Uh, I, oh, yes. I think some people yes. fall into the thinking of, well, as long as I dress well for Mass, it doesn't matter what I wear outside of Mass. But I, I, it, it, I think it does matter. And I, just as one small example, I remember uh, I went to a Nova Sordo Jesuit-run school growing up, but you know, at least they had a, a fairly strict dress code. We had mm-hmm. to wear... Uh, we didn't have a uniform, actually, but we had to wear... Uh, sport jacket, dress pants, dress shoes, dress shirt, yes. tie all the time. And mm-hmm. yes. once in a while, they'd have a day where we didn't have to wear the dress code. We could wear what we, whatever we wanted. And the teachers would always remark that the, inc- the incidence of uh, disciplinary uh, infractions would vastly increase any time mm-hmm. that we were out of our dress code. Isn't that interesting? Yes, but that's human nature. Absolutely, because it's, it's the uniform. The uniform, as, as, as they say about the uh, about the, cler- the clerical dress, or the, in, in Catholic countries, the cassock, the wearing of the cassock, that um, the cassock is the priest's protection, and it, it's his uniform. Everybody wears uniforms. You either either you wear bad guy uniforms or good guy uniforms, and the way you dress should reflect your activity, because 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 there's a the, the, there's a natural there's a natural link there, and we we should. We we should respect that, uh, but that's that's, uh, that's that's an interesting insight too. So all of these areas are areas in which we have to police ourselves, and we have to, and the uh, parents have to police their children, and, and priests have a duty to police their faithful to keep some of that non. This is an example of nonverbal propaganda. Uh, that no words are being used, but the, but the message does ring loud and clear, like the smashing of a shrine. In, in England, uh, by the Tudors in the 16th century, it's the same thing. We always have to, we always have to go against that. One of the other things, Nicholas, with your permission, which I wanted to discuss before we before we conclude, is to talk a little bit about. Right now, we, we we spoke about how in England, 60 years more or less, the faith was pretty much dead. There were sm- small little pockets of hidden Catholics who knew they could be, if, if discovered. Uh, publicly butchered to death, uh, and uh, and the rest were fined out of existence. And eventually, most of the families did apostatize; they just couldn't afford to keep it up, or they they fled England entirely. Um, what 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 about what's the effect of of this fifty years of the revolution on the Catholics? who are left. Maybe they are the children or the grandchildren of the pioneers of what the world calls the traditional movement. How, how well are we doing, how well are they doing in, in the keeping of the Catholic faith? 
I think that the, the answer to that question depends on how, how, how well they understand the principles and how well they can resist the propaganda. That's, uh, that's pretty much my opinion. I, I think that if they understand the principles, then they're going to be all right. I was speaking with um, our esteemed head, Stephen Heiner, on one of the, our latest uh, Root of the Rot show about the history of revolution uh, and, and thought and, uh, and throughout history, uh, how we ended up where we are today, about, about, about this very idea of um, how the Protestant world comes across as conservative, say the Republican Protestant mentality in the United States, um, but they actually have no principles. It's just a question of society which accepts certain norms. Now society is going through this, 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 this radical revolution, like the turning around of the altars in the 60s, except now it's a turning around of matrimony, the ends of matrimony that went first, and now matrimony itself. Now you don't have to be, have a man and a woman anywhere to get married. It's traumatic, absolutely. And if we accept it and just go along with it, then we're, we're co-opted into, um, in, into, into the strange new world. But we reject it because we have Catholic principles, and our Catholic principles will not bend. But if our principles are simply go along to get along, and uh, sure, in the 19th century we believe this, but, well, that's modernism, isn't it? The modernist idea that truth, that truth changes. So I think that in as much as our Catholics are formed with principles, and then they're, they have, but they have to be encouraged by the community. Com community faith is a theme throughout the show. It's very important that there be others in, in the community expression of the faith, and we, we solidify each other. I think that's important. There has to be discipline, um, policing, if you will, on the part of parents or, or the, 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 the priest, the parish priest. And we have to be aware of the propaganda, and we have to know why we're against it. And without being extremists or really, you know, unpleasant people, we have to, we have to in a sunshiny, happy way, we have to keep our, we have to keep our, our Catholic principles afoot. But I, I wonder about how well we're doing with that, because if the principles are not clearly enunciated and policed and promoted and passed on, I think we, we, we are seeing now, and we'll probably see more and more of it, that there's a slow slide to the left, uh, just as children grow up and, you know, they're going to they're marry somebody, and then, then they'll bring this person, uh, the spouse, back into the family, and uh, people influence each other. So um, it's an interesting question. How will the Catholic faith survive? I think many, I think as in England, in the, uh, at the last years of Elizabeth, many Catholic, Catholic families will be extinguished. That's my opinion. They'll, they'll die out. And I've seen it in, in my 38 years as a priest. I've seen Catholic families, the last Catholic's gone. Everyone else is Novus Ordo going on nothing. Uh, it's a slow creep towards liberalism for the reasons that, that, that I've underlined. On the bright side, I think that because of the Internet and God's mercy, actual grace, new Catholics are always popping up. And they're always being trained, and, and they're enthusiastic, and they want to spread the faith and, and the rest of it. But those who lose the faith lose it because it's, um, you know, maybe because it's a cultural thing to a, to a large degree, and they never quite understood it. Lack of real training, lack of uh, what they call in other nations, formation. Lack of a real formation. Uh, that I think maybe that would have something to do with that. 
Yeah. Does well, any yeah, of this it's, make any sense? <laughs> it's certainly, it's certainly a word of caution for yeah. those who are in tradition to not rest on their laurels and think, oh, I've found tradition, um, I'm okay now. Uh, I think we have to be eternally vigilant. And as a parent, uh, one thing that you, your Lordship said really hit home to me, I think, is the importance of not just to, uh, telling our children, oh, you need to do this, you need to do that, mm-hmm. or this is the way things are, but to explain to them the principles of this is why we do things this way. This is why the women in our household never wear pants, not just because mm-hmm. daddy said so, but because, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, it's more feminine, it you know, attacks your femininity to be wearing men's clothing, it's part yeah, of it's yeah. buying into the revolution, et cetera, et cetera, just as one example. Because I, I think that's one thing that, and I mean, I, I'm as guilty as anyone of sometimes it's easier to just say, no, just do that because I told you to. Um, but it's, I think it's very important to sit down and take the time of, well, this is why we do things this way. Sure. I mean, that's... That's the beauty and the privilege of parenthood, right? That that and the the duty you you have to have the quote unquote little talks with the little people in the house, and there has to be that 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 bond, that that, that teaching. You're always a teacher as a, as a parent. You're always teaching, and you're walking down the street, you're driving somewhere, and you see this or that, and you use it as an occasion to explain and to teach. And at the same time, you bond so much closer with your children as you should. You're not a distant authority figure you're you're a father or the mother's the mother and and, and you're, you're you're doing what god wants you to do and you're passing it on uh that's you know that's a very good point the the idea not just uh, sometimes of course anyone has to and you have a right to because i say so and and that's that that's that, there's a lesson there too but that uh sometimes that has that has replaced parenting in some traditional catholic households come to think of it to large measure, and um, because of that, because there are no principles, the children never grew up with a, with an apprehension of the principles. The the practice is just going to it's, it's going to be watered down, and eventually it will die out, and they will be absorbed. You know, then another maybe another thing just quickly to say, if um, if your goal is to be, I wanted to talk about this too. If your goal is to be recog- to R and R to recognize and resist to to be to resist yes but most of all to be to recognize and be recognized by the conciliar churches so that we're somehow the catholic church and somehow as part of that program to to have an entree into into society to be rec- to be recognized as respectable and i can function in society i can run for office i can hold a job i can send my children to such and such a university or college um, if if that becomes very very important you will inevitably make many compromises along the way but, and it, and then your faith is going to just fall away because it was just a matter of culture custom or force force majeure there wasn't really that 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 grasping of why the catholic principles that's another reason why the catholic faith dies out in individuals i think and in families there's this right now today for all of the r and r camp who who the other people who very desperately want to cling to the myth that Bergoglio is a true successor of Peter, he's a true Catholic, and he's a true Pope in some sense. That for them that's the key of respectability, I think. And respectability is the first thing that has to go if you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. 
read the Gospels, meditate the lives of the saints, Catholic history, whether it be the first three centuries or the 16th century in England, it's, it's always the same message. You have to be willing to make those sacrifices to follow our Lord. He's the king, and uh, we are his subjects. Well, uh, you, we're, we're running short on time, but I think uh, if we could just, if your Lordship has a few more minutes, I'd sure. like to follow up what you were saying about the recognize and resist with a quick question. Given that I know your Lordship was with the Society of St. Pius X at one point in your priestly career, uh, back in the 1970s, um, and just from encounters with them or speaking to other people, do you see a, a link or a change in the, uh, the Society of St. Pius X and the principles they hold to or, or that their people hold to over the 30 years of trying to have their cake and eat it too, as you've described? Yes, I, I definitely do. In, in many respects, and you can see even just sort of like a general way, that the followers of the Pius X movement do uphold Catholic morals, Catholic customs. You, you see it in the matter of dress and of education and, and the rest of it. However, in individual cases, and I think more and more, the, the pull is going to be felt from now on to go along, to get along and particularly in those families or in those areas where there hasn't been too much in the way of a real doctrinal or dogmatic formation, I think you will see more and more of the falling away. People do what they do because everyone else does it, because they live in a, in a very tight-knit, and let's face it, you have to say it's a slightly cultish, at least a slightly cultish kind of a mentality in their chapels, their parishes, and their schools. It's a world. It's a world unto itself. But uh, if you compare it as to how it was at the very beginning, then this is the big difference. At the very beginning, the idea was, let's band together because we're all Catholics, and we want to preserve the Mass and the valid priesthood, and we want to have properly trained Catholic priests, and we want valid sacraments, and we want chapels throughout the world for, for people to, to hear, hear the Mass. That has given way in large measure to... The, the, the myth of Pius X, the ethos of Pius X as a tertium quid. You used the phrase earlier, which I, th I think is actually one of their propaganda phrases, to return to tradition or practice tradition. I think that it would be more appropriate for us to say, more correct for us to say, Catholicism. We're Catholics. We're just Catholics. Uh, this whole tradition idea is, is, is part of the Pius X propaganda machine. They exist for, Pius X exists for Pius X. And you're in that world. And you never know from one day to the next when there'll be a policy change. Because uh, something will come on down, come down from on high that we're not meant to resist. So now, say there is a big fuss because in most countries, Pius X no longer conditionally reconfirms those who have been confirmed only in the new rite. Um, and, and increasingly, they will not reordain a priest who is ordained in the, in, in the new rite. So, yes, there's a real change in the ideas that they've, from the beginning, especially now that you see it, though, they have substituted for the church the Pius X society. It's like substituting the king in England for the pope in the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. No. It, it, you have to say, except no substitutes. <laughs> 
And that's the reason why we left Pius X. That's why the reason we would often, in the 70s and the early 80s, scratch our heads and say, wait a minute, I'm with you people because I want to be a Catholic. I'm not with you people because I want to be with you people. It's not as though in the old days, before the changes, I felt a strong devotion to the Jesuits, and so therefore I became a Jesuit, and my loyalty is to the company. No, my loyalty is to the Catholic Church. I, I resisted Archbishop Lefebvre to his face. I told him that at the last meeting that we had in April of 1983, and he was shocked, and he was offended. But I told him the truth. I told him that he had no authority to make liturgical laws and impose them on others. We have to find out what the Church teaches, and we have to do what the Church teaches. Um, that's, all, that's always been the point. So they've, they've, in effect, they've created, I think, sort of a substitute Catholicism. And um, it's like any other substitute. Pierce it. The air, the air is going to come out of it because it's not the real thing. And we have to cling to the real thing, which is the Catholic faith and the Catholic Church, and not to a substitute which by its very nature is going to be changeable and will change, and the emphasis will change. One era, there'll be you know, the zigzag, as Bishop Sanborn says. There'll be very, very conservative, very traditional, very uh, dogmatic against the changes. But at another time, you'll be told to pipe down and be quiet, and this really is the Catholic Church, and we have to we have to go along. We have to go along. Mm-hmm. That that I think is 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 the crux of the matter. I think the Pius X Society, for, almost from the beginning, has substituted itself for the Catholic Church. They're the Church of Tradition. What does that mean, Catholic terms? What what what, what possible place in Catholic theology could be assigned to such a to such a concept? Right. Although I, I guess just to. To sum up, though, I mean, we're not um, wanting to just beat up on the Society of St. Pius X. I mean, it's, as we've discussed, the principles have to be what's key, and everyone has to be vigilant, and certainly uh, contest, uh although even that term, uh, I yeah, think sure, we agree, is problematic. I mean, sure, we're just course. Catholics, but just, we're just for Catholics. convenience, even Sedevacontis have, have known, been known to... Um, uh, go off the rails, so to speak, because of not adhering firmly to to principles and then getting off course. So, um, uh, sure. I, 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 if, maybe if there's one thing that we could take take home from this from this particular presentation of clerical conversations would be to underline again the importance of the knowledge and the embrace of the full adherence to Catholic principles, not to a king, not to the tutors, not to Bishop Fillet or Archbishop Lefebvre or some local other bishop or local leader of a particular movement, but what what is the, in, in this time of devastation, what does the church teach and how can we apply it in, in our day? And that's the reason why we're doing what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, Th- thanks for that, Mort. Uh, I think we're just at the end of our time, so uh, I'll just invite you if you had any final thought that you wanted to to put forward that you haven't had an opportunity to say. Just that, um, just that, uh, a-, a wish and a hope of mine is that more and more um, we could influence our people to make them understand that they do live in a world of propaganda by television, by the press, by the Internet, and um, that any means possible, including our restoration radio, should more and more be used uh, to, to counteract that propaganda, 
to uh, and to to teach and to explain to, to to make evident the beauty of the logic and the reason of these wonderful Catholic principles by which we we declare that we want to live and for which, like the Elizabethan martyrs of old, we have to be ready to die at the very least to suffer a little opprobrium from. But. Um, it has to be a devotion to the church. I want to be. I don't want to be a Lefevreist. I don't want to follow anybody except the Catholic Church. I'm a Catholic, and I do not want to be separated from her in any sense. That's always the truth at the bottom of the day. And if we can say that in a pleasant way, and say that in engaging and present that truth in an engaging fashion, we can also be Catholic apostles. Right. Uh, I mean, I, I suppose we could even say, uh, you know, I, I don't want to be a. Saint Gertrude the Greatest, although I don't think I've actually heard that that, that terminology, but well, not Nicholas, because that's maybe the clergy there, but it's because it's a Catholic faith is why we sure. But I, may, I may be prejudiced, but let me say this: <clears throat> concerning that subject, you could do worse. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you could do worse. <laughs> yeah. But I understand your desire to be even-handed, and, and I do respect that. And, and, and in a lot of secondary ways, you're always going to have that, and that's not really a concern of ours or, or of anybody. But I'm, I'm concerned with um, the living of the faith, the evident living of the faith, and how it does require some, some form of a Catholic community, and how it's not just your private beliefs or the mass you go to, it's the way you live. Those are very important things. And the Tudors understood that. So they changed the way that people lived uh, in order to introduce this new religion, which was essentially the worship of the state. And what we're facing today with propaganda is the worship of the state. So I think we probably need more shows about about war and the war machine and the war propaganda and Washington and the European Union and uh, 20th century history. So, uh, anything that's done al along those lines could only help people have their eyes opened more. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you uh, once again, Lord, for joining You're us on welcome. Clerical Conversations on the Crisis. And uh, I would uh, encourage uh, listeners, we've solicited uh, donations and uh, your assistance for our radio program, but of course our guests, uh, they have apostolates that they run as well that are uh, reliant upon the support of the faithful, and uh, so I would encourage listeners uh, to look up sggresources.org, and that, that's a website that will lead you to all sorts of things, uh, in really, not just articles, and uh, but also uh, you can see the Mass at Thinker to the Great Live there for people who aren't able to, to get to Mass all the time. Uh, I was able to partake of that just on Thursday because uh, I wasn't uh, uh, able to, to get to Mass for that day of obligation. So there's that, and you can make donations to their apostolate there, or you can also uh, contact uh, His Lordship at the church itself. So the address there is 4900 Rialto, R-A-L-T-O Road, and that's Westchester, Ohio, zip code 45069. If you have any questions or comments uh, in relation to this show, uh, perhaps even uh, topics that you'd like to hear uh, Bishop Dolan and Father Chicago discuss in the future, uh, we can be reached at clerical at truerestoration.org, and uh, we'll be uh, happy to uh, answer any questions and perhaps incorporate them into a, a next show. So uh, all of us here at Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and your faith, you'd please consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small it may be. And to those that have donated, 
a heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. And remember, of course, that uh, above and beyond uh, material uh, contributions, the most important donation you can make to our work here is prayer. So please think of offering a mass, a rosary, or even a simple ave for our work the next time you pray. The next time you pray, rather. Uh, and again, if you have any questions or comments, or would like to reproduce our copyrighted work on your channel in some format, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, specifically, if you're wanting to reproduce uh, our work, uh, permission for that can usually be very easily obtained by writing to us at mail at truerestoration.org. So I, I thank everyone for listening, and for the restoration, I'm Nicholas Wansbutter. May God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.